Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Michael Krasny. Yesterday, California healthcare workers were among the first in the nation to receive the Pfizer vaccine. As the country celebrated this monumental milestone, it also passed another more grim marker, more than 300,000 deaths from COVID-19. We'll talk to Dr. Larry Brilliant, the noted pandemic expert and epidemiologist, about the vaccine, what the next few months will look like, and how the Biden administration can get this virus under control. That's all next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Yesterday, the first doses of the Pfizer vaccine were administered to healthcare workers in California and several other states. The same day, the national death toll from COVID-19 surpassed 300,000 people. According to Dr. Larry Brilliant, an epidemiologist who helped eradicate smallpox and an expert on pandemics, this moment is the best of times and the worst of times. And while the vaccine, which was discovered, developed and produced in less than a year, gives hope that the pandemic will end, experts predict the U.S. death toll will continue to rise through the winter unless more steps are taken to put in public health policies on a nationwide basis. We're going to talk this hour with Larry Brilliant about the vaccine, its rollout, and what we can expect in the months ahead. And welcome back, Larry Brilliant, to Forum. Hello, Michael. It's very nice to talk to you again. And good to talk to you. And thank you for joining us. Uh, I guess the place I'd like to begin is to... uh, Talk on a, on a positive note. I mean, this is a horrible milestone. We think of passing 300,000 and, and it's going to be grim through the winter. There's no getting away from the grim reaper in this. But on the other hand, as Dr. Fauci said, the cavalry is on its way. I think you use similar metaphor. And um, Dr. Francis Collins, who directs National Institute of Health, says um, the approval process, strong safety measures should give people more confidence. You've got to hit the reset button on skepticism. Yes, I, I mean, I, I do think the Dickinsonian um, <laughs> illusion is right. Uh, best of times, the worst of times. The, you know, just as the virus has traveled through our society, ripping it apart at exponential speed, uh, science has traveled at exponential speed. And the idea of having a vaccine in people's arms today um, almost the one-year anniversary of this novel virus appearing, leaping from a bat to a human. Uh, one, one year, not just to have a vaccine, but to begin a global vaccination program, the biggest breathtaking. In, in smallpox, we had a vaccine for 200 years before we had a global vaccination program. No, it's, it's moved so quickly that it just uh, defies belief, but it's almost as if... Um... Uh, with the election of Biden, which was formalized in the Electoral College yesterday, we're kind of back in business with science again, and we're back on a kind of track with science, aren't we? Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, the the people in the Biden task force equivalent 
uh, are really sensational. They're, they're scientists of great report and integrity. And the people that he's chosen who will lead us in this um, attempt to quell the pandemic are really w wonderful people. He has some serious problems. We have to um, re-engineer the integrity, the, uh, the positioning of, of both the FDA and especially CDC, which has always led us through every other pandemic and in fact led the world through every major epidemic. And, you know, just for listeners, CDC is like Mecca. Every epidemiologist is either trained there or gone there. And uh, the idea that it has been hollowed out uh, by the Trump administration and ignored and you know, used politically. It's really heartbreaking. So we have to get over that. We are rejoining WHO. Um, I will, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, when I said something to a group of WHO people on a call about how happy I was that we were rejoining WHO, the response was, Larry, you're not rejoining WHO. You never left WHO. Someone made a press release that there was, they were going to file for divorce, but the papers haven't even reached the magistrate. <laughs> now we understand you're removing the press release. We're very happy about that, but you never left. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're back, uh, even though we never left. And it, it, especially, I think you've uh, mentioned some of the people that Biden has named, particularly singling out Ron Clare, who had a lot to do with Ebola, which you were involved in the fight against. Uh, there's certainly a lot of promise in terms of the people who've been named. But also, I think you pointed out that there are about 100 ways to uh, uh, to deflect this or to fight this virus, uh, in addition to what we've been uh, seeing in the way of vaccinations. Uh, I mean, mask wearing is going up, though we have to double down on that, many have pointed out. And it's uh, also, I think, uh, goes without saying that, uh, and we can talk about this more, there are still those who um, especially came out in today's New York Times, a new poll, rural people and Republicans and African-Americans, for different reasons, generally skeptical about vaccinations. But I'm interested in knowing from you or hearing from you about what would serve us best? Because there's been different success in Singapore and in New Zealand and Iceland and Taiwan, places that have had different kinds of success. What is most feasible now in terms of moving us along some kind of track where we can actually see ourselves ameliorating and defeating this in addition to what we're going to be able to do with the vaccine? Oh, I think, you, I think you've nailed it. Uh, let's start uh, with another Dickinsonian quote, a tale of two cities. It's a tale of two kinds of countries. You've just mentioned uh, Singapore and Taiwan, and you could add Vietnam to that, as well as New Zealand and Iceland. Um, you know, we, when you talk to folks from Taiwan or Singapore or South Korea, they look at us with um, pity. How could our friends, our Americans, who are always leading us um, how could CDC, after which their institutions are named, there's a CDC uh, of, of Korea, there's a CDC, a European CDC, there's a Chinese CDC. How could we not have the confidence? Um, how could you have messed it up as badly as you did? So what they show us is that there are many ways to end the, uh, the, 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 the hold that COVID has on us. Uh, for example, Vietnam did it by um, contact tracing 100% of contacts, testing, tracing, isolation. They didn't have any other tools that we did. 
they were just obsessive and they contact traced everyone. Uh, Taiwan did it with overwhelming speed. They found every case as soon as it happened and they responded with the public health team coming in with testing and isolation. Uh, each of these countries ended COVID in a, a slightly different way. The islands had a different opportunity than the mainland. We need to be humble right now. And I think Biden is humble. I think Ron Klain, who, uh, you know, not only was Ebola's are, but now he's chief of staff. What a wonderful, fortunate hire for us. Um, I think they're going to be humble. They should study the successes in other countries. We should incorporate what we've learned. We need to understand the advantage some of those countries had, Michael, because they had experienced MERS and SARS, two other coronaviruses. They were terrified when a new coronavirus happened. They, you got better public response if you'd seen how bad you know, the, uh, your cousin disease was. And they always uh, seasonally wear masks. Um, but we're up to 70, 75% masks. I, I'm a co-author, minor co-author of a paper that is being published in uh, Lancet uh, Digital this week, uh, adding a little bit more data to the fact that uh, face masks really make a big difference. Um, social distancing, which is number one, the most important thing. Uh, the countries that have succeeded all had masks, social distancing, and they all had an integrity and a seriousness of purpose in testing, tracing, and isolation. Now they'll be able to test trace, isolate, and vaccinate. Speaking of Lancet, uh, Dr. Brilliant, um, I can't help thinking about the impact that the article by Andrew Wakefield, which has been totally repudiated, has had on an anti-vax movement, which you've actually gone to some lengths to suggest has been it turned into a political movement. Uh, I mean, you talked about it as having legitimate and honest concerns, uh, but also being selfish. Uh, and a lot of it on the dark web uh, in terms of the organizing that's going on, uh, but also being perhaps funded by lawyers. Uh, and something that people ought to be aware of particularly is that uh, when, it, when it comes to, well, trusting vaccines, there are too many people right now who are still wary. I mean, the numbers are going up, as you point out, that's really on the positive side. But as I said, you've got all these people uh, in different communities, Republicans, rural uh, people, and African-Americans with different reasons, skeptical. Yep. Uh, first vaccine in history, the smallpox vaccine, cowpox, actually, that's the origin of name for vaccine. Baca means cow. Uh, 1797. First anti-vax movement, 1798, <laughs> right after the first vaccine, because it's so incomprehensible and was at that time that you could take a pustule uh, from a cow's disease and put it in a human's arm and prevent a third disease, smallpox. So there's an understandability about anti-vax movements uh, in the smallpox program. In India, we had to kill cows to harvest and make the vaccine against smallpox. Think about India and its adoration and love and reverence for cows. Um, you know, in Kano, northern Nigeria, uh, an Islamic community that had a rumor that the polio vaccine was intended to sterilize Muslim men. Bill Gates flew into Kano to meet with the mullahs and uh, reach an understanding and eliminate the fatwa against the vaccine. So, so the anti-vax movement 
is part of our um, culture, of all cultures, I guess, in many ways. But that article that you're talking about was one of the biggest failures of scientific integrity. As Lancet accepted an article from Andrew Wakefield, who had studied eight or nine young children and published an article saying that based on his study, there was a correlation between the children who were vaccinated and those who were not in their risk of getting autism. That article was published. It was widely disseminated. It frightened parents who had autistic children, who had friends who had autistic children, and it became a meme. And only months later did the Lancet editors understand that Andrew Wakefield had taken money from uh, some plaintiff's lawyers that I, I believe the price was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, it's not, none of this history is, is that clear, but Andrew Wakefield was disbarred. He lost his medical license because of that. The article was retracted, but a retraction uh, only goes a mile. <laughs> the original article went around the world. Um, and we're coming up on a break, so I just want to mention once again that we're talking to Dr. Larry Brilliant, who is epidemiologist, philanthropist, and CEO of PAN Defense. And if you would like to join us, let me invite you to do that. I know many of you have questions and would like to join the conversation. Comments, whatever's on your mind, you can join us now at 866-733-6786. A number again for your calls, toll-free, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email us, forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum on KQED Public Radio. Our guest is Larry Brilliant, epidemiologist, philanthropist, and CEO of Pan Defense. If you'd like to join us, you can do that by phone, 866-733-6786 is the number for your calls. Again, that's toll-free. You can join us at 866-733-6786 or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org. Here's a question from a listener named Lyndon who says, Can Dr. Brilliant confirm that the vaccine does not prevent you from contracting COVID-19, but rather prevents you from becoming symptomatic if you do. Could you still infect others who have not been vaccinated? A great question. Uh, there are three things you look for in, in a vaccine, maybe four. Does it prevent you from getting it? Does it prevent you from getting really, really sick? And does it prevent you from shedding the virus and infecting others? Um, this, these studies that both Moderna and Pfizer did were optimized to answer the question, does the vaccine prevent you from getting seriously ill or dying? And in fact, uh, in both the trials of all the people who were uh, given the vaccine, uh, uh, I think there was not a single death of the people who got the vaccine and almost zero serious cases. So the vaccine did the job that it was intended to do. It may have also done those other two things, but the studies were not designed to ask the, answer the question, does it prevent you from getting it 
or does it prevent you from spreading it? Those studies are ongoing now, but just the idea that we can prevent our hospitals from being overrun by people so sick with COVID that they need to go into an ICU. This vaccine, both of them, appear to be able to prevent that with 95% success. There's still, however, Larry, a lot we don't understand. We don't understand, I think you've pointed out, the pathogenesis of this disease. We don't understand uh, uh, what happens post-exposure. There are about 146 vaccines, but we don't know about the vaccine after exposure. In fact, there's thought to be possibility of side effects uh, years from now, three to five years even. We don't know really, do we? No, and and it, you know, if you go back to the famous uh, Guillain-Barre's outbreak that uh, followed the uh, uh, swine flu vaccine of 1976, it wasn't until 50 million or so people were vaccinated with that vaccine that we began to see Guillain-Barre's show up as a side effect of the vaccine. It isn't possible to test um, only 30,000 or 45,000 or the combined 75,000 people, half of which will be placebos, and to predict what the extraordinarily rare side effects will be, the one in a million. I mean, I confess that smallpox vaccine, which is one of the safest vaccines in history, it still killed one out of a million people who got it. But that was a risk that everybody was willing to take because smallpox killed half a billion people in the 20th century. Um, In a pandemic, there are trade-offs that you make are very different than you would make in ordinary times. I want to look at the global picture with you, too, because there are billions who will be unable to afford this vaccine, and that's a big problem. But getting back to uh, the anti-vax movement or those people who are afraid or have serious concerns, some of them certainly, as you've pointed out, legitimate where vaccinations are concerned. I'm talking particularly about the history that African-Americans have had in this country, with that sort of thing. Um, I think you've pointed out that you really don't get to herd immunity uh, necessarily. Uh, and for example, in smallpox, we didn't get to herd immunity, right? That's correct. Um, in smallpox, we had a vaccine. And also, by the way, in Ebola two years ago in the Congo, we had a vaccine that had an attribute called PEP, post-exposure prophylaxis, that you could be vaccinated even while you've been exposed and you are incubating the disease. So you could have been infected still be vaccinated, and then stop the disease and stop the spreading, the shedding of the virus. Um, I'm hopeful that of those 146 vaccine candidates, some will have that attribute so we can then use ring vaccination, use vaccine uh, as part of testing, tracing, and immunization. Uh, That's how we eradicated smallpox. No, we never got to herd immunity in smallpox. Uh, Mass vaccination did not work as a strategy. Uh, And that's why this new uh, surveillance containment, later called ring vaccination, that's what made it possible to eradicate smallpox and was majorly important in the conquest of Ebola most recently. And we're going to be a lot better globally, I think, uh, if AstraZeneca comes across uh, for use here. It's in use, I believe, in the UK and India, but um, and it's only because it's only one shot. And uh, the reality is, and, and I think you've pointed this out, and I want to go here, even though it's going into kind of a political uh, context. We need global cooperation, and, and uh, we need it badly if we're really going to do this on the global level, which I know is of great concern to you. 
it's it's almost at this point uh, just a simple fact that, um, and you've pointed this out, I think, uh, nationalism has really in some ways uh, provided a way against uh, the kind of cooperation that we need. And I'm talking about nationalism here as you see it in terms of uh, not only Brexit, uh, but Putin and Erdogan and Bolsonaro and Trump, uh, it's, it's, not, it's torn us apart more than it's unified us. Now, whenever you say something like that, you get accused of being a globalist, I realize. But that's, <laughs> that's reality, isn't it? <laughs> Let, let's use Albert Einstein to defend that, us, uh, Michael. He said that you cannot solve a problem at the same level at which it's created. You, you can't solve a global problem problem at a national level. You just can't do it. I mean, let's just say that California uh, eradicated uh, COVID, uh, but uh, Arizona didn't. We'd constantly be reinfected and, and all the work we've done would be for naught. Um, if we leave Russia, if we may be mad at Russia, but if Russia still has the disease or China or Hong Kong or South Africa, then it's going to come back and infect us. It's in our enlightened best interest in a pandemic to try to eradicate or to at least to bring to zero uh, COVID all over the world. And um, you mentioned not being able to pay for the vaccine in, in many countries of the world. Uh, WHO and Gavi, this wonderful group of vaccine distribution and CEPI, another uh, in international agency that's funded by, by Gates and the Wealth and Trust that makes vaccine. Those three have come together to cause, call, uh, to create a COVAX a buying consortium. They're bringing in money from their rich countries and they're buying vaccine and distributing it at low cost all throughout the world. But they're very underfunded. And uh, uh, Trump withdrew from that uh, group. I'm hoping that Biden will rejoin that group and that we will find it in our national best interest. Forget about altruism. In our enlightened self-interest to uh, subsidize and fund and help manufacture more and more vaccines all over the world. Uh, I do want to mention about AstraZeneca's vaccine, which I think is still going to be a two-dose vaccine despite our best intentions. It can be manufactured almost anywhere. And it will be manufactured uh, in the Serum Institute of India uh, in Pune, uh, which already manufactures 30, 40, 50% of all the vaccines in the world. And because it can be manufactured everywhere, it can be manufactured at lower cost, distributed more easily than uh, the two mRNA vaccines, especially uh, Pfizer, which requires storing at minus 100 degrees. So forgive me, we're going to have a lot of vaccines. There's an advantage with AstraZeneca with refrigeration too, isn't there? Absolutely. It, it requires regular refrigeration. Yeah. There's a lot of good things about many of the other vaccines, but the really important thing is we've got two of them uh, or that, that we'll soon have two, I hope, that are approved by the FDA. Uh, each will have about 100 million doses. Um, that's a great way to get started. And let's get started with your calls. Let me begin, Scott, with you. Join us. You're on the air, Scott. Good morning. Thank you very much. Um, I'll start with Mr. Krasny. Thank you for your program. And you are going to be missed coming into the new year. Uh, Mr. Brilliant, um, what I've heard, I've been paying a lot of attention to the news on the vaccine. The one thing I have not heard on the news is it's a two-shot vaccine. If you get your first shot and either you're exposed to COVID-19 or you actually get COVID-19, what are the protocols about the second shot? Um, well, let me 
first of all, join you in, in celebrating Michael Krasny's immense contribution to the Bay Area. Michael, the, the world as we know it's not going to be the same. Um, Thank you. Now, I, now I'll answer his question. Appreciate it. Now I'll answer his question. Uh, so if you look at the data from the Pfizer trial, and Moderna looks similar, but we haven't really unpacked it completely, uh, you can get two lines on a graph, and they, they're convergent for the first five or six days. And the two lines would be for people who got a placebo, saltwater injection, and those who got the Pfizer immunization. And you can see... Uh, how much disease occurs in those very different groups. Uh, even after one vaccination for the Pfizer vaccine, it appears to confer significant, although not 90%, immunity. Um, it, it's it's going to be a very interesting question if we have an uh, inadequate supply of vaccine. How is the moral decision made? Do we give twice as many people one dose or the same number of people two doses. And uh, I know how the manufacturer feels about that very strongly, that they built this to be a two-dose vaccine. But still, if we don't have adequate doses, that's a moral question that has to be asked. Uh, and as far as people who've had the disease, the recommendation is that they get vaccinated as well because of this long-haul syndrome. Um, uh, and I forgot there was another part of your question that I don't remember, but. I think we covered the, the, the major questions that he was raising. Okay. Uh, actually, I was going to raise something about, I keep reading this metaphor of Swiss cheese. <laughs> well, how does that work exactly? Or why does it keep coming up? So, so it's a really, I think it's a great way to think about a disease control program when all of the things that you're doing, masks, social distancing, testing, tracing, isolation, vaccination, they all have a role to play. None of them, they're all necessary, but not sufficient conditions to eradicate or control the disease. So if you think about them, each, each one of these interventions as a slice of Swiss cheese, it's got holes in it, and it alone would allow the virus to get through. But if you take a dozen slices of Swiss cheese, the face mask wearing, social distancing, hand washing, cleaning out your environment, um, testing everyone, uh, tracing all the contacts, isolating people who've been exposed, good hospitalization, vaccination. If every one of those were a piece of Swiss cheese and you put them together as a package, there's no place for the virus to sneak through. Um, so that's, that's the image. Um, it was created by some uh, mechanical engineers, but I like the image. <laughs> Yeah, I also like uh, the way uh, COVID spreads through the population being described as lumpy. That uh, that seems to make a good deal of sense as well. Let me bring another caller on here. Sid joins us. Sid, welcome. You're on the air. Good morning. Hi. Hi. My name is Sid. And um, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Oh, cool. So my question is, I'm from India. I'm an immigrant. And um, in September, there was a big spike of uh, uh, COVID hospitalizations and deaths and everything in India. However, right now, it, it, has, it has dropped significantly. And life is back to normal. People are going on vacations, doing all this stuff. Um, and I wonder if they've uh, achieved herd immunity. There is no vaccination yet in India or even here almost. And um, and here in the U.S., the cases are going like crazy. More than 3,000 people are dying every day. 
So how come we are suffering so much and uh, there is a billion population and they're, they're doing well? I mean, relatively. Some thoughts from uh, you, I'm, Dr. Brady? <laughs> I'm glad you said relatively. Uh, I lived yeah. in India for 10 years. I love India. Um, however, uh, India uh, has a, had a couple of moments when they stopped reporting disease. They underreported death. Uh, Uh, cases were hidden. My own experience working in the smallpox program and the polio program is that that is an endemic problem with the disease reporting in India. Um, I, I don't believe for a second that India has conquered um, COVID. Um, and I do worry that there are places in India, just as we've described earlier, where there are um, outbreaks of the disease that are not recognized and the disease is continuing to spread. And then as it has happened twice already in the outbreak, Uh, there'll be a sudden conflagration in India and the reporting will go from 10,000 cases to 100,000 cases overnight. So I'm cautious. There are places definitely in India that have extremely good health systems, extremely dedicated doctors. So it, I can say Swiss cheese in a different sense, uh, but the Indian response um, need, needs to be uh, consistent throughout the whole country. One of the mysteries that remains uh, in terms of the way this disease, uh, the vicissitudes this disease has gone through, or the Swiss cheese thing, um, I keep coming back to Germany uh, where there was a real flattening of the curve, and Merkel gets a lot of credit for that in terms of her leadership and leadership in general in Germany. Uh, then all, well, the, the virus came back with a vengeance, uh, ferociously. Uh, you have to ask why. I think it's worth observing that many of the countries, Iceland and uh, Taiwan and New Zealand and Germany, who did really well, uh, were run by women. I think that's just important to, to take note of. Uh, and in the case of Merkel, uh, it, it, it's being run by an engineer uh, with a, a very pro-science bent who's been working on pandemics for 20 years. And, um, and she did something like the Swiss cheese model Um, working on all the different facets of it. But, but Germany has something that we don't have, which is a national health service and a capacious hospital system with a great number of excess beds for surge capacity. So the thing that we look at the most, let's just say what Gavin Newsom has uh, uh, said is our organizing principle, that any community that has less than 15% Uh, empty beds in the ICU, in other words, 85% or more of the beds are taken, that hospital is uh, in danger of being overrun and not being able to take heart attack cases or cancer treatments or difficult pregnancies or accidents, motor, motor uh, car accidents. So if we reach that point, that will trigger various parts of a partial shutdown. And uh, I think Merkel has done that as well right now in Germany. Uh, it took longer for her and they to reach this point because they have, uh, it's easier for them to surge their hospital uh, capacity. Um, I think that they will be in this quasi shutdown mode for a very short period of time. They'll do it the way they did it before, which is short and complete. Uh, and that resets the clock at a lower level of incidence. We're coming up on a break here, but I also wanted to ask you, since you mentioned Governor Newsom, what do you think about the notification exposure app that he's put forward here that's appearing all over the state, really? Um, I just downloaded it. Uh, I'm going to use it. Uh, I, I, again, it goes in the category of uh, helpful but not 
uh, sufficient, uh, and it's another slice of Swiss cheese. All right, and we'll uh, take some more slices of uh, your calls. In fact, if you'd like to join us, uh, we'll go to your comments too when we return from a brief break here. You can join us again toll-free at 866-733-6786. That's the number to call. Again, 866-733-6786 for your calls. And you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. We're about a minute from a break. Uh, Larry Brilliant, uh, Lori wants to know, her 95-year-old mother lives independently in a group senior living situation, soon to get access to the vaccine. What does the data reveal as to safety for the very old? Well, interestingly, in some of their studies, they did have people in their 90s who were vaccinated. Um, Not in all the studies, but in some. uh, I I think what the data reveals is that people in the age group that your mother is in are at such high risk of dying from this cruel, if I can anthropomorphize, cruel virus, um, that the the benefits uh, largely outweigh the risk. But that's an individual decision her pre-existing conditions, and only her doctor can advise her on her unique circumstances. Well, the first, uh, I think, uh, recipient of the vaccine over across the pond in Britain was indeed a nonagenarian, a woman in her 90s. We'll return with Dr. Larry Brilliant and more of your calls and emails. You're listening to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Our guest this hour is Dr. Larry Brilliant, epidemiologist, philanthropist, and CEO of Pandefense. And we're going to go right back to your calls. Vivian joins us. Vivian, welcome. Vivian? Yeah, hi. Yes, hi. My question was just that um, since the uh, vaccine quantity is limited at this point in time, wouldn't it make sense to vaccinate those who've already had COVID at the very end, since they probably have some immunity? Larry Brilliant? I think so. Um, I think that in you, if you're putting the, the people who are most at risk of getting really sick or having to go to the hospital first and the first responders who are working in hospitals, for, um, you know, I think putting people who already had the disease uh, later in line would make a lot of sense. It makes me wonder also about what we're um, going to be able to do about the fact that people who do get COVID will have a pre-existing condition. This uh, really can affect the whole healthcare system, can't it? Oh, Michael, you are putting your finger on what I fear will be the long tail of this pandemic, that for the, the next decades, um, our health system will be burdened uh, by long-haul urge sy- syndromes and by syndromes that we haven't yet figured out. I mean, we didn't know that uh, shingles, for example, was a sequelae perhaps of the chickenpox virus. We, we didn't understand there was a post-polio syndrome until many years later. It is not inconceivable uh, that uh, we, we know so little about the, as you talked earlier, the pathophysiology, the 
why does this disease affect small blood vessels and cause micro uh, infarcts, microemboli? Why does this disease affect every single organism, uh, every single organ, your kidney, your heart, your lung? It, it, we call it a respiratory disease, but it looks more like smallpox is a respiratory disease, but it affects every part of the body. And um, so we're, our health system, um, our way of life, we're still dealing with lots of uncertainties. One of those big uncertainties came out in something I was reading that you were addressing, and that is um, the number of uh, animals that get infected, uh, rabbits, minks, cats, uh, non-human primates. Uh, I mean, we're not even sure if this is two-way, but uh, back in the 1960s, I think you were citing a, a surgeon general who said, uh, we've, we, we've ended the age of infectious diseases now. <laughs> Uh, all of uh, all of these fellow members, fellow other creatures, uh, makes it theoretically uh, possible that it's going to be impossible to eradicate. On the other hand, uh, I suppose one could rejoice in the fact that all of this messenger RNA uh, uh, sets us in the pathways that we didn't even think were possible in terms of the opportunities of what we can do medically. Yeah, all three of the things you just said are completely right. I mean, uh, we are in the age of pandemics. Every year. Uh, one, two, three, four, five new viruses leap, spill over from an animal to a human, a bat or a cow or a duck or a pig into humans. Um, fortunately, most of the time, they don't have that pernicious combination of transmissibility and lethality that COVID has. But whether you're talking about SARS and MERS and bird flu and swine flu and Ebola and lots of fever and Zika and HIV AIDS, these are all zoonotic diseases that jumped to humans recently and they'll continue. And humans are now living in each other in animals' territory. We're eating more bushmeat, eating more meat. If we don't um, take cognizance of the fact that there'll be more diseases like this on the horizon, we will not prepare for them. And uh, I'm confident the Biden administration's well aware of that. The Obama administration was well aware of that. And they, of course, have in common now um, a really great guy as a uh, uh, the chief of staff. Going back to the question you raised about mink, cats, non-human primates who, uh, who do get COVID, and we worry that they create an animal reservoir from which COVID can come back into human populations after we've controlled it and taken it to zero. Uh, I think when we use the word eradicate, we imply taking everything out getting rid of it. So anytime we now use the word eradicate, we have to put an asterisk on that word. Um, and that asterisk is this animal reservoir. We may find that when we get down to low levels in humans, we're also able to conquer the problem in animals. But if we can't, then it's always going to have an asterisk um, on our hopes for eradication. Also gets us back to that uh, theme we were talking about earlier that you have put a good deal of emphasis on, although I know you say it's not in your lane, but the need to cooperate in a global way, not only with respect to these diseases, but also with drought and famine and climate change, not to mention nuclear proliferation. Let me bring another caller on. Don joins us. Don, you're on. Yeah. Could the virus mutate or develop resistance to the vaccine if people fail to get the second dose? So it, the virus is already mutating. Um, every virus mutates. Uh, influenza probably mutates every week or something like that. Uh, this virus has made one large 
mutation, so to speak. There's another clade. Uh, it's dominating, and it seems to be more transmissible, but it seems to be less lethal. So, and, and that's frequently the way mutations go. They usually go in one direction, not in both. Um, I don't know that being vaccinated only once in what was thought to be a two-dose regimen will increase uh, that possibility of mutation. It's not the same thing as antibiotic resistance uh, in that regard. So I, I don't know that that will increase the mutation. But yes, uh, there's a roulette wheel out there. It's spinning. And every time the virus, you know, uh, replicates itself, there's a risk of a transcription error and a mutation. Again, we're talking to Dr. Larry Brilliant. I want to go to some of your emails and tweets. And here's a tweet from Eric who says, I'm on medication that weakens my immune system. Will the vaccine be effective for individuals like me? Yeah, you're, yeah I'm sorry to hear that. I, I hope that you do well. Um, it is, um, it's a very common phenomenon that people are on medication that weakens their immune system. And in a study uh, that one had 40,000 some odd people and the other 30,000 some odd people, it wasn't possible to study in sufficient numbers people who were on medication like you are. So we don't know the answer to that question. Um, but uh, the same data is being looked at again. New studies are being done. Uh, this is a conversation for you to have with your physician because the way in which your immune system has been altered may in a funny way actually make it easier for you to take the vaccine or harder. Uh, and that's a conversation you'll have to have with your doctor. And Sandy, a uh, listener named Sandy asks, how long after an individual receives the COVID vaccine, are they maximally uh, protected from the infection? Um, well, this is, again, the question of whether we don't know, really, do we? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that w what we saw in the trials, which was these, these are very brief trials. None of them lasted more than three months. Um, we found no individuals who had been vaccinated who, yeah, from either Moderna or from Pfizer who died or who had serious enough complications to be in an ICU on a ventilator. Um, it, that was the purpose of the trial. That was the way that the vaccine was aimed. So uh, when I looked at the uh, vaccine efficacy graph over time, to me, it looked like the vaccine began to show um, protective uh, characteristics very, very early, less than two, three weeks. Um, so I'm optimistic that it'll be earlier rather than later. But the, the manufacturers insist on reminding us that in order to get the full 90, 95% protection, they planned on two doses. And a question from a listener named Trish who says, how do the trials determine that the vaccine works after receiving it? Were participants deliberately exposed to the virus? No. Now, that would have been a challenge trial. <laughs> uh, it would have been unethical to deliberately expose human beings who had not taken the vaccine in the placebo group to uh, illness when we didn't at that time have a get out of jail free card. We didn't have a treatment that worked. We didn't have monoclonal antibodies like Lilly and Regeneron. We didn't know about uh, decadron, dextromethorphan, uh, de uh, dextromethasone. We didn't know about those things. So we didn't, it would have been unethical. What they did instead was they took two groups, two cohorts. One got salt water in the same you know, same kind of looking syringe, and the other got the vaccine, and then they were just left alone. And because the disease has reached such high incidence levels all over the country, 
uh, many of them, in, in the case of one, I think it was 95, uh, got the disease. And all the 95 who got the disease in, uh, in a serious way were, were in the placebo group. And that's how they made the comparison. Uh, this was a short study, relatively small study. Uh, it was good at telling us effectiveness, but as far as safety, um, you know, it, it, what we've seen looks good. And by the way, I want to say the mRNA vaccines should be safer than the vaccines we've used in the past, which took an actual virus and killed it or, or heated it up to incapacitate it. Because under those circumstances, maybe the virus wouldn't have been completely killed or heated. This is a very different thing. This is a bit of, of code, the messenger RNA that's put into your cells and then the body makes both the antigen and the antibody. It's pretty amazing science. Um, and in theory, it should have fewer side effects, but only time will tell. Well, you, see, you mentioned therapeutics, uh, and it prompts me to ask you something that's, uh, I think, weighing on a lot of people. And that is, um, I just wonder if you have some thoughts or want to reflect on this. The, the, the sort of special treatment, uh, I'm not only talking about President Trump and Rudy Giuliani, I'm talking about the concern that many have with hospitals in arrears now and undergoing all kinds of fiscal difficulties. Uh, somebody comes along and is a billionaire or a multimillionaire or knows someone on the hospital board, they get special treatment with therapeutics uh, that normal, the rest of us aren't available to us, can't get. Anyone who denies that that is part of uh, the ecosystem of medicine is, is not paying attention. Um, it, 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 I don't think it's a significant number that affects the percentage opportunity that everybody else has. Um, but there's no question that was true for Trump, no question for uh, his personal attorney, um, and maybe even for uh, Chris Christie. I mean, it, it is, you know, and it's the way things are. I, 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 don't, I don't defend it. Um, but it is not a significant percentage of the use of these very scarce quantities, uh, especially now with these monoclonal antibodies that you've mentioned. Um, they're, they're, they're magical um, in the way that they work. And the, the sooner we can get large quantities manufactured and the, the faster we can learn how to use them on an outpatient basis earlier in the disease, the more we'll have one more um, avenue to make ourselves return back to normal. And we'll return to some of our listeners' emails. Uh, Vinice says, when we say that the vaccine is 95% effective, what does that really mean? If just under 10% of those infected require intensive care, will that 10% reduce by 95%? It, it means that in a trial where two equal-sized groups uh, got uh, both a placebo and the vaccine, and there were roughly 100 people who got sick over the course of three months, 95 of those 100 were in the unvaccinated group. And from that, you infer that if you are in the vaccinated group, your risk of getting the disease is 95% less than someone who's in the unvaccinated group. Uh, vaccine efficacy is a mathematical formula um, and it follows a, a cadence. Um, it's not a guarantee. It's, it's a statistic about a large group of people and every individual 
will have pre-existing conditions, better or not better immune systems, all taking other kinds of pharmaceuticals. Each case is unique, but when you put it all together, these are amazing numbers. They are indeed. And again, if you've just shown us, we're talking to Dr. Larry Brilliant, epidemiologist and uh, philanthropist, CEO, Pan Defense. Uh, let me go to some more emails and tweets here. Greg wants to know, do cells that produce viral proteins get killed by the immune system? Is that why a second shot is required? The cells, no, not not the cells that produce, not the B cells is what, what I he would be talking about the B lymphocyte cells. Now, this is um, a, a, a more system-wide, it'd be hard to explain, I think, in the few minutes we have, but what mRNA does, it's the messenger RNA that's part of the usual way in which the body uh, transmits and creates new proteins. So by uh, creating the right kind of mRNA, whether it's for a vaccine against COVID, maybe one day for a therapeutic, against some other disease, you can insert into the body a almost like a computer program that instructs the body how to make the treatment that in this case prevents the disease by blocking these, you know, ACE2 uh, receptors that the spike protein <laughs> goes into. Um, but in other cases, it would work differently. It is a brand new breakthrough uh, technology that has huge, but as of yet unknown, uh, potential uh, in to change medicine. There's a question uh, from a listener named Bernie. Well, let me before I go to that, I want to go to a tweet from a listener because a number of people are asking questions related along these lines. Why do some vaccines have long-lasting impact while others are annual? We know that the flu is different each year. What do we expect from COVID? Oh, what a great question. Um, you know, yellow fever, uh, the vaccine lasts 10, 10 years. Uh, smallpox, it lasted a lifetime. Influenza, uh, it lasts, if you're lucky, one season. You get a little bit, maybe a carryover to the next year. Um, in, in, in large part, it's a question of being able to match the antigen or the virus to the vaccine. In the case of influenza, uh, the scientists are really, their back is up against the wall. They have to predict six months in advance what will be the uh, exact type of influenza that will be prevalent six months later during flu season. And they get three or four shots, so they make what are either trivalent or quadrivalent vaccines that have three, you know, they get three chips at the roulette wheel and they, they, they do their best and they probably, you know, Every other year they get it really, really right, and every other year they don't. Um, that's why the influenza vaccine uh, needs to be made into a universal vaccine. Uh, and there's a lot of work being done by some really good people in the Bay Area, I'm very pleased to say. Uh, why vaccines have durable immunity? Um, it's mostly because the disease that they're treating has durable immunity as well. Um, and that the vaccine provides the kind of immunity that the disease would have produced. With the vaccine, you can actually add things to it to make it give you even more immunity than just having the disease. Um, and that's usually the reason for that um, correspondence. Just a quick question because we got seconds left here. What about Bernie wants to know vaccinating young children because they're very low risk for COVID infection? So we don't know. 
young children, for the most part, have not been studied. We don't know uh, any, anyone under the age of 16 uh, was left out of the trials that were done by, I think, both Moderna and Pfizer. So it, it's speculative. Um, I, I am, I'm, I'm of the category and I'm in the minority. I know this and it's controversial. Um, I think that to get kids back to school, we should vaccinate teachers and custodians and guardians to make those schools safe. That's a different answer to a different question, but I think we're both looking in the same direction. And you're not alone there. There are many people who say they should be essential workers uh, because of that. Larry Brilliant, always good to have you on with us. Thank you so much for being with us this hour. Michael, thank you for keeping us company these last 30 some odd years. You will be deeply missed. Thank you for that. And Dr. Larry Brilliant, again, is epidemiologist, philanthropist, and CEO of Pan Defense. And we're here with you Monday through Friday, 9 to 11, an hour repeated in the evening. Stay tuned for an hour with Mina Kim. And for all of us here at KQED Public Radio, please stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.